This podcast is brought to you by Florence Filter, the leading company in air filters. They care about your air and have been since 1971. Good morning, everybody. This is Brandon Matloff in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Stella Oak Mavens podcast, where we feature different mavens in different fields. A maven is an expert of an expert. They are the go-to person who you would want to ask all the questions to before making a decision. The purpose of our podcast is to help the consumer be more knowledgeable. If you're trying to figure out how to manage a crisis, this is the podcast to learn from. Today's podcast features the story of Eden Jalat Bo. She's a damage control expert and a former business professor. From celebrity scandals to corporate fraud, Eden will share her skills on how she manages your crisis and explains how she writes breakup letters for your boyfriends and girlfriends. Uh, Welcome, Eden. Hello. <laughs> so, Eden, what was uh, Eden Jalot like the day she graduated uh, from college? Paint the picture uh, for me. How did you end up back in L.A. doing crisis management after being in New York? Right. Okay. So, the day I graduated from college, I very much did not want to be my father's daughter. I didn't want to have to live under his shadow. Um, and I actually, I ran away. I went to Seoul. I didn't actually run away, but I went to Seoul, South Korea. And that is where I actually was a university professor. Um, I had this really great opportunity because I'd studied business in undergrad, um, that if I was at least in the process of getting my MBA, I could be a university professor. Um, but I realized that no matter where I went and what I did, I was always a crisis manager underneath. And so I thought, why, why fight something that I'm so naturally good at? And why don't I just join forces or join forces with my father? So, so you said something it, interesting. So because I, I think a lot of listeners experience this, but you know, their parents oftentimes they'll have parents that are very successful in a field, and you, you had mentioned that you wanted to move away and maybe kind of create your own brand for yourself in a sense. Mm-hmm. But then you ended up back uh, working in the same line of business. So how was that a challenge for you? Did you have to do Did you struggle with that initially? Initially, I think it was because I was still quite young when I joined the firm. It was a lot of myself in my own head going, I don't think people are listening to me. I don't think that they respect what I have to say. Uh, And when I finally got out of my own way and realized that my father's been training me to do this since I was itty bitty. And if I just, said things with authority instead of having this upward inflection where everything sounded like a question that people would take me seriously. Wow. Well, as I'm thinking about getting into the content here, um, why does a consumer, like why does somebody need somebody who does crisis management? So Warren Buffett actually put it really well. And he said that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and about five minutes to ruin it. So if you think about that, then you'll do things differently which is completely in line with what I do. People spend their lives building their reputations and then something happens and it seems to evaporate instantly. So it's all about protecting your reputation. So as I hear you say that, can you think about a situation, obviously you don't name your specific client, but can you think about an example of a problem where somebody had built up a reputation over a 20 year period of time and then ruined it in five minutes and then what did you do to... Like, how did you, how did you come into the picture and try to fix it? So one of the things that seems to happen a lot is I work with a lot of nonprofits 
And I find that people who join the boards of nonprofits um, don't dedicate as much time to them as they should. And a lot of things seem to fall through the cracks or you join a board and it's all of your friends and you trust other people. It's when you treat people like family, not saying that treating people like family isn't a good thing, but their personal ties and trust really seem to cloud their judgment. And so when something bad happens, they go, no, 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 they would never have done that. I can't believe that. I've known this person for 20 years or 25 years. And those are the things that can evaporate their reputation almost instantly because they will get dragged down with it. And so they might not have been the person that, you know, took the money from the nonprofit or did some other inappropriate behavior to ruin the nonprofit. But being on that board and not protecting the organization and themselves will actually bring them down with the ship. So you're seeing a lot of this happen, or I mean, it just is it that you have a, a niche with nonprofits, or you actually see that this happens a lot with nonprofits? I work with a lot of nonprofits. It started with you know maybe 25 percent of my business, and then last summer it launched up to about 75 percent of it were nonprofits. Now it's kind of evening back out. But. So someone almost acts like they're part of a nonprofit to almost hide the fact that they're doing something, or maybe they use that to leverage the fact that they're doing something they may not necessarily should be doing. And that's how within five minutes they can ultimately um, do something that can be career changing for the, for the worse. And, so and you're I find there. that people who really don't need any money uh, are the ones who actually go and take money out of the nonprofits. It's there aren't tight enough financial controls and they kinda of look over and go, Oh, look at this and they start to take stuff. Almost because I think they just they know they can get away with it. Uh but then an audit comes and they get discovered. So then how do you help them? So with ones like that, we are usually brought on to represent the uh either the board itself or the organization. Um and it is a lot of times these aren't public matters where the news media picks it up, but when money does go missing, it's how do you communicate, you know, what happened, how are you going to make sure it never happens again, and painting that rosy picture, not only with the rest of the people that are involved with the nonprofit, but the community that you serve, and especially with the donors, it's a really hard conversation for a lot of board members to have with donors when they say, hey, you know, basically, the money that you gave us, it oopsie-daisies kind of went missing. Um please still support us. It's crafting strategic communications to support that. We've actually had so many successful campaigns over the years, but I've had donors come back to the nonprofit and say, I really appreciate the way that you've handled this and have actually given them more money on top of the money that it was already taken. Okay. So that's a great point. And now I'm actually thinking of a specific situation, which I, I don't know whether or not you worked on or not, but I'm thinking about the reputation of Tiger Woods because he had done a ton with his uh, Tiger Woods Foundation, which is still actually pretty strong today, right? But mm-hmm. obviously, they had to have some type of crisis management to keep that thing going, because you know, obviously, what happened with his scandal, it allowed uh, his brand to almost tarnish instantly. And so, would that be an example of like a situation where someone would hire you to then come in and represent? you know, the nonprofit to keep this thing going. Cause I personally didn't really want to give any money to the organization after I heard about that. And then same thing with other organizations. Once you start hearing 
uh, about things that nonprofits are doing and your, your, you know your money has a good chance of not actually influencing for the better, then you're not so quick to give, give a donation right away. Yeah, that can be really frustrating. And that's what we understand going into it. It's a lot of nonprofits that are publicly blasted for, you know, mismanagement of money or having been associated with somebody who's now going through a scandal. It makes people really second guess where they want to put their money. And it's reminding the individuals, the donors, why they had gotten in there in the first place. You want to be as transparent as possible. And when you have an organization that's protecting itself against an individual and their transgressions, um, that is really the best thing that you can do is separate. And a lot of people don't think about this is how do you separate it from the individual, especially from a operational, you know, banking sort of perspective. If a lot of, I find a lot of, uh, People who've started organizations, they're so tied into it that if they get booted, um, it's, you know, where, who's going to be the signer on the account and who's going to do X, Y, and Z because everything was tied up with that one person. So when you're setting up an organization, you want to make sure that one person doesn't hold all the power. So who hires you at the end of the day? Because I can't imagine it being the celebrity themselves. Is it their counsel? Is it... Um you know, some of their business manager, like who, who ends up hiring you guys? So at the end of the day, there are, well, we've identified three specific pockets of people that are usually the ones that are calling us. There are lawyers, board members, and either the business owners themselves or the executives that are part of the larger organization. Um, but lawyers hands down are the biggest pocket of people that will call us. And usually what happens is something bad happens. People call their lawyer. Their attorney either says, call Eden, or the attorney just calls me themselves. And are you in contract then with the lawyer? Yes. I'd say over 90% of our clients, uh, the actual client is the attorney because when we set it up that way, we are everything that we do falls under attorney-client privilege. Um, I mean, assuming that you follow the guidelines. But uh, being under the umbrella of attorney-client privilege is really important because it makes sure that all of our conversations with the end client, the attorney's client, are held in confidence and we can't be deposed. So it's just like we're an extension of the legal team. Because if you can't tell me where all the skeletons are buried, um, I can't do my job properly. That makes sense. So how do you get paid? Through the lawyers themselves or the individuals that are being represented? It depends on what works best for the client. Um, some will have a account with the law firm and the law firm will pay us. Other times, people will just write us a check directly. Makes sense. In the uh, introduction, I, I kind of haphazardly joked about some of the uh, breakup letters. I know that uh, just knowing you, you've written some breakup letters for for some different people over the years. Can you share how that uh, translated uh, into your career? Is there a certain letter that you wrote specifically where you then thought, hey, you know what, I'm actually pretty good at this and I probably should be making this a career. Right. Um, so I grew up in Echo Park, which is part of Los Angeles. It's over by Dodger Stadium. And in elementary school, so I was in the fourth grade, one of my friends was dating another one of my friends. And I know in fourth grade, it's not a really big deal. But essentially, she wanted to break up with him and start dating this other guy. Fast forward, there was a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but it basically broke down to the fact that I wrote several drafts 
of a breakup letter that, you know, said essentially, it's not you, it's me or whatever it was. And my metrics for success were, is he going to understand and is he not going to cry? Because he was known for crying a lot. And I actually succeeded at the end of the day. He did not cry, which I thought was a miracle. And he completely understood. He didn't really care. And I think at the end of the day, maybe the relationship wasn't that serious. Maybe she took it a little bit more seriously than he did. Um, but writing breakup letters and crisis management are really the same thing. It's about delivering bad news in the nicest way possible. So let's fast forward then uh, to today or, or maybe over to just even the last couple of years. Was there a pivotal moment where you had done something where you were doing some crisis management and you're like, I'm destined to be in this business because I basically had the situation and I created an environment where I took the crisis out of the public eye. Like, was there an actual story that you can share with us? And you're like, this is why I knew this is the right career for me in the long run. There have been several of those moments, but one actually happened recently where somebody had done something and it never made it into the public eye. So I'm going to talk about this kind of vaguely. Um, Someone had done something and it was pretty bad. And they were like, I want to be truthful and I want to be honest. And I'm like, that is wonderful. I wish all clients were like that. The only problem was that they wanted to be truthful and honest and write a really big open letter sort of thing to the public. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm like, think about it this way. Like, This is kind of like a private crisis. Only a certain amount of people know within your community. Um, but if you publish this letter, you know, you have to go back to what is your goal? And at the time, the person wanted to keep their day job. And I was like, well, think about it this way. If you publish this letter, how is your employer going to feel about this? They were like, ah, right. So it's really getting something where it was already pretty bad to begin with, but it could have been so much worse if they didn't listen to my counsel and legal counsel say, no, 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 please don't put that into writing. So sometimes it sounds like it makes sense to have a conversation with you um, pretty soon on in the in the scope of like the crisis, right? I mean, they should be talking to you along the way as opposed to like trying to fix it on their own and then trying to figure it out. Right. It's the first couple hours of any, you know, sort of crisis situation that are really the most important because those are the ones where you set the frame and the tone for the rest of the conversation. And if you say one thing and then you decide a few days later, a couple weeks later, actually, you know what? I want to take that back. It's really hard to walk back those statements. So you have to make sure that you have all of the facts and all of your ducks in a row before you start going out and doing anything or saying anything. Can you share with us um, maybe a time where it didn't work out as well? Um, oftentimes, the way to connect with some of the audience is just to share with us uh, a challenge or maybe a, a failure that you've had where you weren't able to necessarily um, protect someone or a time that you had uh, some unsuccessful results, uh, but then you learn from it. So maybe you can share with us a story in that area. So in terms of a huge challenge, it's every time I get a client, it's really hard for me to remind myself that because we're all empathetic, right? We're all humans at the end of the day. And when somebody starts telling me their problems, it's how do I not internalize this? Um, but I think that I'm successful in really remaining objective at the end of the day because I realized in high school when people used to come to me with their problems and say, oh my God, Eden, how do I fix this? 
I would get so absorbed and involved in all of the drama, I wasn't able to successfully do anything. Um, or I would just take on so much burden, I would actually start to grind my teeth at night from all the stress. Um, so that was a really big challenge uh, way back in high school. So it, you know, it pops up every time I get a new client, but it's a nice reminder for me to go back to just how much it actually just wore me down back in the day. And it sounds like you've learned from that over the years and you've implemented yeah. different ways to, to figure out how to relieve that stress. Um, as I flip to the other other side of it, uh, what do you think the, the proudest moment you've had in your business like? Is there an accomplishment that you've had in your career that you, you feel really good about? There wasn't a particular time that I can think of that was just, oh my God, that was so amazing, right? Put it on a plaque sort of thing. But because, so I still work with my father. Um, and as he's transitioning out into retirement, it's every single time somebody calls and asks for me and not him or asks for my advice and not his or asks for his like a secondary, you know, do, do you agree with Eden? Yes or no. That always makes me go, yay, I've succeeded. Um, because, you know, when I first started in the career and I talked about earlier, it was, I was always wondering, are people going to take me seriously? What's going on? I kind of felt like I was living under my father's shadow, but. I'm sure he's very uh, proud of you for that. And what do you think, what do you, what do you think it is that the reason they're calling you over him? Is it your, um, intuition on social media? Is it an age thing? Like what, what is it that has someone call you and ask for you specifically? I think it's because I am such a chatty person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I tend to relate, uh, on a lot of levels with different people. Um, and I'm out there more. My father put in a lot of years doing the business development work. And now I've, you know, taken the lead and done that. And so I think it's because I have more face time with people. Is there a certain person that you've met in your career that's really um, affected you in a positive way, like a mentor or a connection that you've had other than your father? So one of the first really special people in my life was my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Mitchell. He and the reason that he was so awesome was because he was, he taught all of the students how to manage time, which usually in school, right, you get a deadline and you're like, I have to do this on this day. I have to do this on this day. He would go, here are all of your tasks for a week or for two weeks. Just make sure you have them done by whatever day you can do them in whatever order you want, but manage your time effectively. And that was one of the special contacts for me because uh, as it pertains to crisis management, it's, you know, what is your end goal? There are a lot of things that have to go between now and that goal, but you have to manage them all correctly in order for them to work. Love it. Um, I'm going to do a rapid fire session with you. This is basically uh, a bunch of questions. It's going to throw you on a, a curveball, unrelated, but I love <laughs> okay. to hear how uh, you think in, in some different capacities. Uh, so do your best to answer your questions and, and we'll, I'll ask you some follow-ups from here. So what's the best financial advice you've ever received? It's pretty basic, but a lot of people don't seem to understand it. Don't spend more money than you have, right? Don't rack up credit card debt. Smart. Can you share uh, one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? I really believe in advocating for yourself. If you don't put it out into the universe and ask for things, people aren't mind readers. So, you know, be your best advocate. You can't always expect your mom to be, you know, your cheerleader in the background for you for your entire life. Do you have a, um, a website or a 
blog or something that you could share with listeners where they could read about more to learn about more on this like crisis management subject? If they want to learn more about crisis management, um, you can hop on to our website. The easiest way to find me is honestly just to Google Eden and crisis PR. We actually have a couple books and a frequently asked questions page. But in terms of a resource for listeners that they all have, it's really tapping into your own network. Okay. And asking your friends for advice and help. So when you ask your friends for advice and, and help, how does that then help you? Help me? Help help uh, the individual. Uh, well, you know, people seem to forget. They always think they're siloed off. And I think a lot of times people forget to tap into their friends and their colleagues when they have a roadblock or something that they're working on and they can't seem to get through because people genuinely love to help other people. So if you have a problem, you know, ask a friend. Hey, I'm having this issue. What do you think about this? Uh, they don't have the answers. Maybe somebody else does. Could you share uh, maybe a book that you've read that maybe helps with that or just a book in general that you highly recommend? So there's a book called The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and it actually goes along with the tapping into your network where it's if you give and don't expect to receive, spoiler alert guys, um, if you give and don't expect to receive anything in return, it'll actually end up coming back to, you know, paying it forward. Um, all these people with the taker mentality, they don't seem to do as well in business. Um, so be nice. Biggest hobbies for you outside of the passion for your business. <laughs> uh, I love to drink wine. Uh, and there's a sandwich shop near me in Santa Monica called Bay Cities. They're known for their godmother sandwich, but they also have about 40 other cold sandwiches, and I am meticulously working through the list to try every single one. That's my latest hobby. What's your favorite wine? The My favorite wine? I love uh, Cabernet. Awesome. Well, thanks for playing the uh, rapid-fire section with me here. Um, any current projects that you're really excited about? So there's a project that I'm really excited about that my father absolutely fears, and we're coming out with another book. So we have one, A Lawyer's Guide for Crisis PR, and then we have one for board members. And now we're coming out, or I'm working on one for either business executives or business owners. I haven't quite figured out which direction I want to take that one in, um, but I'm really excited about it. I vote business owners, and how do we get this book? Right. Um, so the other books, you can find them either on Amazon, if you type in um, Lawyer's Guide, Crisis PR, or Board Member's Guide to Crisis PR, or they're all on our website. Uh, can you just say the website real quick for us? So it's G-I-L-L-O-T-T communications.com. Okay, so that's gillotcommunications.com. And if you were a consumer, if you're, you know, if you're sitting on the opposite side of the table as you, Eden, uh, what do you think you would want to know? Like, What questions should they ask you? when they're hiring you? One of the questions that I get asked most frequently from, and it's usually the really busy business or business owners is how much can you take off my plate and how quickly can you do it? Because they're usually so overwhelmed and stressed and having a crisis launched upon them is usually the last thing that they want to deal with. So I'm thinking about that and, you know, a lot of times people, they come in, they have an issue, they have a crisis, they want to talk to you. They're not really sure how to, you know, I would think a lot of times it's a sensitive issue. Like they're really not sure 
how they should even approach a subject. And I have to imagine it feels very uncomfortable for a lot of people if they have a crisis to come out and admit everything, right? It it depends. There are two very distinct camps of people that call me. There are people that call me, I barely even get my name out, and they start telling me all of the things. And then there are the other camps where it's, I have to ask them in two or three different ways, you know, are you sure this didn't happen? But what about this? And how about this thing? Um, And a lot of times people don't do it on purpose. They just think that if they don't, Tell me they're, you know, protecting me and I can do a better job representing them because I've had clients go, well, if you knew that, how are you going to represent me? And I'm thinking, if I don't know that, I'm not going to do a good job. Uh, I think it's the comfort knowing that when they do sign up with me, they're also signing through a, a lawyer with a law firm so that everything is privileged. And I think that really does take away a lot of the embarrassment or stress of, you know, really letting out your deepest, darkest secrets. It really sounds like they have to really trust you. And I mean, they have to be referred to you somehow and to build that rapport with somebody. But as I'm thinking about it, which client do you prefer to work with? The one that's trying to hide and you have to extrapolate everything or the one that is the chatty box and wants to tell you every single thing from, you know, the fifth grade teacher she worked with? I I love the chatty box because they understand and they're going to be the easiest to work with throughout the entire process because they understand from the very get-go it's I must tell you everything in order for you and the attorney to protect me it's the ones that try to withhold the information it's going to constantly be pulling teeth and it actually is really much more expensive for the client in the long run because the attorney and I will have to basically team up and pull all this information out of you and you're going to rack up hours. So it's cheaper and better in the long run for your reputation if you're just open and honest about all the things in the beginning. Any um, parting advice as we uh, wrap up today? Hmm. I would say for people that have employees, make sure when there is a crisis, uh, make sure that you remember that these are your employees and not just, you know, treat them like family or close friends because when something bad happens, reporters will grab any warm body that they can and will get comments out of anyone. And even if you think you can trust someone when they have a microphone thrust in front of them or when a reporter asks for comment, they're going to think they have their 15 minutes of fame and they might destroy you. So be careful. (laughs) Best thing is just never lie and then you don't have to remember anything. That is very true. Yes. Well, thank you, uh, Eden, for your time today. I really uh, enjoyed it and can't wait to make sure that I never have a crisis and have to call you. But it's good to know that you're out there uh, doing this. And this is Brandon Matloff. This has been a Stella Oak Mavens production. We empower you, the listener, to take control of your life. You can follow our Instagram at Stella Oak Mavens for updates and more information about the podcast.